Hey, we're going to talk with Patty Backus next. Patty Backus is a very familiar name, of course, the former Vancouver School Board Chair, currently writing for the Georgia Strait and keeping very, very busy, uh, writing a lot about special needs students. Patty, good to have you on the program. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the piece you just wrote recently in the Strait about kids with special needs, but a couple of general questions. First, the teachers finally uh, managed to... Uh, ink a deal with the government, the British Columbia Teachers Federation, ratifying with an unheard of 90% approval rating for a deal that took well over a year to negotiate, but things now will settle down for at least three years, correct? Uh, That's my understanding. Yeah, that's very good news uh, for the sector. That was a long, lengthy, protracted negotiation that uh, seemed to be stalled for a long time. So it's good news. It means everyone can get back to focusing on uh, dealing with the the unprecedented crisis that we're in and how we're going to ensure students continue to learn despite closures of schools. Yeah, the deal was was done between the uh, the teachers union and the BC Public School Employers Association. As the chair of the Vancouver School Board once upon a time ago, were you automatically a member of that Public School Employers Association, Patty? Yes, the BCPC Public School Employers Association represents all public school boards and government. So it has a board that is uh, composed of trustees who are elected by by other school trustees to represent them mm. and also some government appointees. But it's, it's a complex structure because government sets a bargaining mandate, essentially says this is the maximum raises you can give out and leaves a bit of wiggle room to do some fine-tuning. But uh, it's primarily directed by government, although school boards have input about uh, their priorities as well. The Premier said just the other day, no in-class learning is likely for most British Columbia students until the fall. And you've been talking to, you've been in the education business for a long time. You've been talking to a lot of parents since this whole thing, this lockdown began. What's your general impression? What's the feedback been like so far, Patty? Um, You know, it's really mixed. I think uh, teachers have worked really hard, and I think there's a lot of recognition for how quickly they regrouped and rose to this unusual challenge that uh, no one anticipated a few months ago, that they would be completely shifting their learning, for the most part, to remote. So I think that has gone, you know, as well as it can, as people try to work through using unfamiliar computer applications and platforms to to figure out how they're going to deliver curriculum to, to children. And I think for parents, you know, some are saying it's not too bad and their kids are working fairly independently, where others are really struggling. Yeah. saying, like, I just I can't do this. I'm trying to work from home. I've got three kids and I'm getting emails from different teachers. I don't even know which kid they're about sometimes. And it's just it's stressing us out to uh, parents who have children with special needs who really because of their disabilities, can't really use the online platforms and, and really need to be in faith, up, uh, in person to do any meaningful learning. So well, let's exp- it's all over. Yeah, let's yeah. expand on that special needs uh, uh, aspect of the conversation because you wrote a piece in the Georgia Strait recently about that, and you talk yeah. about special needs children, uh, children who are developmentally disabled, who don't understand what a pandemic is, who don't understand why their caregiver and the nice person who comes to visit me two or three times a week hasn't been around for weeks they're feeling hurt they're feeling disconnected they're completely uh uh, discombobulated in terms of their normal routine Uh, that's all gone out the door are there any measures in place to assist parents with uh, with special needs students 
Well, I think, you know, school districts have been trying, and I, I know the Vancouver School Board started up some of their, on a very, very limited basis, some of their what they call life skills programs for students with, you know, who are fairly low functioning, who may have communication difficulties, might not be verbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, there's a small number who I believe have been ten- attending part-time, uh, and I know some other districts are picking it up. One of the things that I pointed to in my column um, was there really is a lack of, I think, provincial leadership on this to an extent to to really push that uh, it's a, it's all students must have some form of education being provided. And for those students who remote learning isn't working for, there needs to be consistent assurance that parents will get that support. We are seeing, I think, fairly successful rollout of providing childcare for the children of frontline healthcare workers yes. in school districts. Yep. So I don't really see why we can't be uh, guaranteeing the same for students who require face-to-face to have any meaningful interaction. Now, a lot of those students would have had one-to-one support from a support worker when school was in session. Sure. I, I really believe you could safely do, with social distancing and precautions and possibly personal protection equipment, Uh, have at least those kids going for at least a few days a week to see the familiar support worker, be in that familiar place, see their teacher, and and understand that they're still getting some uh, really meaningful interactions and a a chance to work on their schoolwork. Um, And and I think even Dr. Bonnie Henry um, pointed out a, a few weeks ago in one of her press conferences, there are kids who are vulnerable and there are some who are at risk of falling behind, and that could have lifelong implications for some kids. Right. Uh, not for all. Most will probably, you know, be resilient and get through this. But there will be some kids who really do get left behind if we don't pay very careful attention. Only a minute or think, so here, Patty. What yeah. sort of appetite do you sense from the province to get in there and get something, some assistance, get something started at least? I think it's starting. And my concern is that it really has been completely downloaded onto local school boards to figure that out. 60 different school boards trying to figure out 60 different Sure. answers as opposed to minister fleming doing the same thing they did with the ch- with the child care for health care workers children is to say this is what must be done and i want reports each week to tell me how many mm-hmm. kids are going in what support they're getting uh school districts have the funding to do that they can do it and they need to get going on it really soon because some parents are truly reaching the ends of their ropes yeah you sense that don't you patty yes, thanks definitely. very much for this we'll, we'll talk more because we'll, we'll, we'll reconnect in a couple of weeks and, and uh, see whether this is going to be improved upon or not we appreciate your setting it up for us this morning and we will talk again that would be great thanks very much sterling you're welcome patty Bacchus, Bacchus, rather former vancouver school board chair the column uh, what where's the help for students with special needs is at the joined by chris sims who is the bc president of the, the chapter our chapter of the canadian taxpayers federation always welcome to the program hi chris Hi, good morning. Good morning to you. I'm looking at the Taxpayers Federation website, taxpayer.ca, in which uh, there's an open letter to all federal party leaders, and you congratulate them for working to keep Canadians safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. And you talk about the efforts that they've uh, so far done, providing resources to the healthcare system, emergency funding for laid-off employees, and aid to employers who might lose their businesses. And you go on to 
to ask people to check the box. So what you're doing is 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 creating a, a template, if you will, that any taxpayer in the country can go to your website, uh, have a look at, and then check boxes that he or she agrees with. And let's talk about the the remedies that you and the Taxpayers Federation are offering to the leaders of Canada going forward during this pandemic, Chris, because we know what they've done so far. Yes, we do. And again, we're still not quite out of the woods. I think I can speak for most of us who have been at home during this unprecedented crisis. Uh, One of our main concerns is going to be the debt. Uh, Our debt clock, which you might remember, we travel around the country every now and then to remind people how much they owe, uh, both provincially and federally, in in debt. Uh, Our debt clock might not even be able to hold the the amount of debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to put a big plastic one on the head of it or something. This is very concerning uh, because while we know people need relief right now, what we're indicating to the politicians there is once this is all done, we're going to have to have a serious look at the budget and figure out together, hopefully, what's really needed and what's really not. Uh, we're not there yet, uh, but we're just giving them an indicator that When this is all done, we're going to have to make decisions as to what government should be funding and what we really need to focus on, because this debt cannot become insurmountable. Well, we can't have our great-great-grandchildren paying it. And that's the way it's shaping up to be, but it also sort of implies, Chris, that with this massive debt we're accumulating, that the inevitable outcome is higher taxes, just to address just even beginning to pay this off. We need to keep in mind, though, too, I hear what you're saying, is people often will say that that's where they get their revenue from, but there's other ways of doing it as well. Uh, they'll be able to make some cuts, which ones we don't know yet. Again, we have to wait for the smoke to clear sure. to really take a hard look at what we should be funding. Uh, but right now, I'm sure you're getting phone calls both personally and, and as your role as host from people who don't know how they're going to pay their rent. They don't know how they're going to afford groceries. Uh, it's really difficult for them. So we're really telling the government, Please do not raise taxes on right. these folks. So it's that's a box that a taxpayer can check on this template that you've got on the website. Correct. Okay. Don't raise taxes. Exactly. Okay. So to give you a good example, here in British Columbia, uh, they hit pause on the carbon tax yep. hike. They didn't hike it as they usually do on April 1st. Federally, they did mm-hmm. for some reason. So even here in B.C., where we invented the carbon tax in the first place, uh, they did hit pause on that. So some governments do know you can't be jumping up taxes right now. Right. And you're also looking at a plan. You want, again, a box that a person could check is provide a concrete plan. Again, it's not available to us yet, but somewhere yep. somebody's got to be working on the master plan, right? We sure hope so. Uh, there are very intelligent, very highly paid people who work uh, in government. And we're not talking about just the elected representatives who, of course, change hands during elections. We're talking about the folks who head up departments. Uh, permanent government, uh, in some cases, bureaucrats. There are really smart people within the Department of Finance, and I sure hope that they have their pencil sharpened and that they're figuring this out while we're all in lockdown. And cutting spending is uh, should at least be, according to your take on it all, should be a big part of that concrete plan. Oh, it's a gigantic part. If you need, you need to keep in mind also how much money government wastes on silly things. And if you think back now, it feels almost impossible that they were spending money on for example, flying chefs around the world. Uh, we might remember the, the mm. trip to India that Prime Minister Trudeau took, where they flew a chef from Canada to India to cook Indian food. Mm-hmm. Well, that was just a drop in the bucket. That was just one example. That fund 
from the Foreign Affairs Department has something more than $11 million in it that they use to fly people around the world in that sort of fashion. Right. Like, that sort of stuff. It just got to go. Like, right off the top, gone. And then, of course, there will have to be more structural changes that we'll have to examine. Again, we're trying to encourage people because we know they're working hard and we're all trying to do the right thing. So we're, we're encouraging, but we're also reminding them that when this is all over, uh, we're going to have to take a hard look at all this. And the other box that's possible to check is pick people over projects. Explain that one for us. So, for example, uh, as they are right now, where they've given people emergency funding. So it's almost a form of, you know, employment insurance for any of your listeners who've ever been on it. Uh, you get you got it much faster this time. It's more. But I do warn folks, you will get taxed on that. So do be careful with those payouts. Sure. Uh, so do keep that in mind. So that was good because they gave money right away. And the not projects part, what we're warning about is don't turn this into, say, a year from now, handing out a pet project money to, I don't know, uh, putting a, creating a canoe museum where mm-hmm. nobody ever asked for it in your own backyard of your riding. Right. Funny how that works. Yeah. That happens uh, across government lines, no matter which party it is. Don't do that. Don't make this into uh, a slush fund for pet projects. Give it directly to people in the form of emergency aid and or tax relief to people. All right. Now, this uh, this uh, petition template is available for anyone at taxpayer.ca. You can go to it. You can have a look at it. If you uh, agree with the suggestions of the Taxpayers Federation, you can add your name and uh, add to the petition, to the open letter, to all the party leaders. Only a couple of minutes left here, Chris, and I wanted to specifically zoom in on the CERB, wondering about when it becomes, I mean, it's an important stopgap right now, a bridge measure for critically important for a lot of people, but at what point could it become a disincentive? That's a great question. And we're hearing anecdotally, I'm sure you are too, me personally, I'm hearing from people who say, you know what, I'm the only one working in my shop. Yeah, There's nobody else coming up to work. I'm also hearing from folks, uh, a small business person reached out recently and said, you know, I had all these students lined up to work at a really nice car detailing place all summer and decent pay, um, more than minimum wage. And they're all home now. They're not taking the jobs. That's anecdotal. We hope that it's limited. Uh, we, we really wanted to focus on get the money out now, yes. help people now, as you say. But there's going to come a point. We don't know yet when that point is coming of when this becomes a disincentive. So I would really encourage everybody, if you're that small business person and you've suddenly had your workforce dry up, tell your MLA. Write to your member of parliament. Note it. So it's documented. Write it all down so that it isn't hearsay or um, any sort of third-hand information anymore, that it's real. Contact your local MLA and your MP, and that way they'll be able to judge whether or not they've now reached the tipping point and they're doing too much. Because they mean well. You know, we all had to get through this. No question. But you're right. that, That dial is going to tick over sometime, and we need to document when it does so that we can dial it back. Interesting stuff. And, of course, the, the, the debt, you and I are going to be talking about the debt, mm-hmm. Chris, for, for quite some time Years. to come. And it's, it's, I suppose, a little disheartening that it all that the person in charge of it all is Mr. Budgets will balance themselves. That I find a little unsettling, although, to be perfectly fair, uh, the government is doing what the government is expected to do and doing a bang-up job of what a government should be doing under the current crisis. So we'll unravel the debt column a little later on. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, Chris. 
Likewise, thank you. Taxpayer.com is a great place to go. Check it out and have a look at this petition. And if you want to check a box or two and add your name to it, uh, off you go. It is a real pleasure to welcome Laura Jones back to the program. Ms. Jones is the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Laura, good to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. When we talked about a month or so ago, we were in in a position of, of sort of looking into the darkness in terms of what the government might offer by way of remedies, particularly to the business community. Since then, the government has come up with a massive package. What do you make of their package and how effective is it being so far? And uh, And what's the outlook for its effectiveness? So there are three big pieces to the federal government's uh, package. There's the business um, uh, assistance loans, the SIBA loans. There's the wage subsidy. And then there's the rent subsidy. And so, um, you know, and many of the programs, I think, are working quite well. But, of course, there are always those that don't qualify around the edges that we're worried about. And Mm -hmm. we know that both the wage subsidy and um, the emergency business account have both had expansions in terms of their eligibility. And we continue to work around the edges um, of those programs because there's still some that are not uh, eligible. And in fact, we're hoping that there may be some movement still on the emergency business account. Um, The newer one is the rent assistance. And that one's trickier because the other two are now open for applications. And in fact, with the emergency business account, the money is now flowing. Um, So that makes it easier and and gives you more certainty. But with the rent assistance, the applications aren't open for uh, landlords until the middle of the month. And then the, the money, we're not sure when it's going to flow, whether it'll be days or weeks after that. So there's still a lot of uncertainty with that program is what we're hearing. And many, many tenants who need the assistance, not sure whether their landlords are going to apply. Yeah, Laura, when we talked about the possible remedies the government of Canada might come up with, uh, you expanded on on a list of what the business community was, was looking for. Have all of those needs and all of those concerns been addressed by the government of Canada? Did they offer enough by way of uh, packages? You know, the challenge with this with this storm that we're in is that it's never going to be enough because our system wasn't designed to subsidize business and business owners didn't go into business to ask their, you know, to put their hands out um, to government. Sure. In fact, many of them are really unhappy to be in this situation where they are uh, needing help from others. So there are always going to be people falling through the cracks. But the challenge is how do we see as many otherwise healthy uh, businesses through to the other side of this? And I think they're doing um, a, a pretty good job. But having said that, there are still some pockets that we are, are quite worried about. And we continue to say there's a provincial role here um, to come up and help some of those businesses with emergency money that are falling through the cracks of federal programs. And last week, for example, uh, Manitoba put in place $6,000 of emergency money uh, for businesses who don't qualify for the federal programs. And we'd like to see uh, British Columbia look at Manitoba or Nova Scotia has a version of this, uh, as does Saskatchewan, some emergency money for businesses. And our are- is that likely here in British Columbia, given the fact that there are a number of provinces already on that page that uh, Victoria could be convinced to include BC? Um, I think 
there's a possibility that Victoria could be convinced. I mean, one of the things the provincial government did quite quickly, which was um, a good move, was to reduce property taxes by 25%, Mm -hmm. and that will help uh, many tenants as that flows through. Um, They also have a $1,000 grant, and they could use that program and and enhance that a bit for businesses that need help. I I think they're looking carefully. I mean, I think everybody has an incentive to see as many otherwise healthy Main Street businesses get to the other side, whether it's big business or or government and and bigger businesses are also saying to us you know how can we help what what you know what do businesses need and and i know they're working on some of their own um you know their own pieces of this which will probably be around advertising and that kind of that kind of thing yeah laura i was wondering too uh in the province of british columbia they have made it uh, a, a rule a short term but nonetheless a, a fast rule that evictions of tenants from a rental property uh, will not be possible even if the rent is pending or even if there's a, an in your face i'm not going to pay you anything no matter what the situation may be uh, at presently no one can be evicted in a personal rental situation would such a rule applying to business also be of assistance at this time? The short answer is yes, and we've been calling for a rule to um, prevent uh, commercial tenants from being evicted from their properties if they were otherwise in good standing for the duration of the COVID-19 emergency, and I think that's going to help. Look, I mean, landlords and tenants are working out the May rent right now in real time. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of them are are trying to connect, trying to figure out what works, trying to see whether the federal program uh, makes sense in their situation. But that we do have some, and it's not, it's not, you know, I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to say that it's, it's, um, you know, the majority or anything, but there are some uh, tenants who are very worried about being kicked to the curb because they've been shut down and their landlord um, is still asking for full rent. So I think we do need some protection for those situations. And several provinces have done it. Both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have found different ways to do it. Nova Scotia's is a little bit of a kind of a work around their own system, I would say, um, in the sense that they've just said they're not going to process any of these things. Um, but effectively, that's provided the, the protection. Um, and then New Brunswick went a little bit more formal uh, way of doing it. And uh, is so in terms of the the rent subsidy package that you just started talking about a few moments ago, uh, there will be those for whom that package is ideal and others who are who are going to use it as best they can, but it's still not going to cover everything. So uh, at least they're in a position where it's somewhat helpful. Who's being left out by this? Who's give us some examples of businesses, enterprises who simply just for whatever reason don't qualify. So there's two categories, two big um, concerns we're hearing with the program. One is the threshold to be eligible is very high. So you have to have seen a 70% revenue loss. Uh, as a tenant to be eligible for the program. So that's a pretty high bar. The wage subsidy is a 30% revenue loss, just to give you some indication of how high that bar is. And imagine you're a business owner and you've lost 50%. Or maybe you've been doing some online sales, so you've got a trickle of revenue coming in, but you don't quite meet that um, threshold because you've, you know, you've got, you're only down 60%. Right. uh, Only, I say. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So those people are in pretty, um, in, in pretty tough circumstances. And then, and the second big thing that we're hearing about the program is a, a real uncertainty about whether landlords are going to apply. And while it's tempting to say, you know, well, what's wrong with the landlord here? You have to remember the application process isn't 
open until mid-May. The money doesn't flow until later than that. Many landlords have their own bills to pay sure. and have their own um, worries. So, you know, there's, they're, they're, not all, they're not all being, you know, deliberately difficult or anything like that. They've got their own, um, they've got their own concerns. So, but if a landlord doesn't apply and you need the help, that leaves you feeling pretty uncertain if you haven't worked something out with your landlord. And as I said, there are those um, there are those small minority of cases where it looks like landlords are being really difficult. And those are the worst cases because you've basically given all the power to the landlord um, and the tenant des- is the one that desperately needs the help. Okay. So again, this is a, a circumstance in which the small business person, I suppose, in some ways has to recognize, as you just said, the landlord, it's not just a, 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 a sinkhole for your cash, your rent payments on your business. The the holder of your uh, property is probably pay, paying mortgage on it. So uh, the money is flowing through to that person, to that person's bank. And speaking of banks, where are they in all of this? besides administering the federal programs? Well, they're administering the, the federal programs, and they've given some, and they, you know, they look to be doing a reasonably good job of that, particularly with the business account loans. We know we've had some challenges, and we've encouraged people, if they want to get in touch with us at cfib.ca, we'll, we'll try and help. We've helped navigate some challenges people are having with their, with their banks around those loans. But um, in general, they're doing a very good job, and they got the program up and running uh, quickly, and I think they're looking at what else they can do for their customers. Um, I've talked to a couple of uh, 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 senior people at banks, and they're very worried about uh, about what's going on with Main Street and trying to do what they can um, to keep things reasonable. So talk to your bank if you have a situation. Of course, everything is different, and not everyone's going to have a great experience, um, but we are hearing overall in general that things are pretty good with the banks. Yeah, we've had some lawyers on the program over the past few weeks, Pat, uh, and, you know, just talking about this, Laura, and, and the one thing that they've each individually stressed is the need for communication. Whether it's uh, positive or negative, nonetheless, on both sides of the equation, the tenant, the landlord, uh, whatever the the relationship may be, there's an urgent need to reach out in some kind of good faith so at least both parties have a sense of where the other party is rather than they're the enemy, they're not giving me any money, and we're at war. That's not helpful. Oh, such a good point. Communication is absolutely critical, and we've been we've been um, giving the same advice to business owners. We've got actually some template letters on our website for um, tenants who want to communicate to their landlords and attest to the seventy percent revenue loss and say this is the situation I'm in. And remember, even if the landlord doesn't want to go for the federal program, there may be something else that can be worked out that is in that you know in that. Um, sweet spot where yeah. it works for both of you because that's you know really ideal this is this is two reasonable people working it out is what i keep saying we also have a, la- a, te- a letter for landlords to reach out to their tenants and explain hey this is the situation i'm in um and you know that letter says you know we're not sure where, whether we're going to apply yet because many landlords aren't or they can customize it and say we know we want to apply whichever situation um works for them but asking reaching out to their tenants and asking what kind of shape the tenants are in um, so that something can be worked out, um, because 
in all likelihood, everyone's going to take a hit here. Yep. Um, and finding that, finding negotiating what seems fair, especially for those businesses that are really hard hit, um, is just a reasonable thing to do. Our guest back with us this morning, and it's a pleasure to have her with us too, is Laura Jones, the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Great website too, friends, cfib.ca. You, uh, weeks ago, when we talked about all of this going into these uh, remedies that the federal government has offered up. You told us about the surveys. You have uh, your your uh, job, your company, and your business, and COVID nineteen, and you've been sur- surveying small business operators right across Canada for many many weeks now. And on the website, uh, you p- post the results. And one a number that I find uh, quite disturbing: thirty two percent of those businesses who have had to close, Laura, are unsure if they will be able to reopen. That's a pretty high number. Does it represent any one particular sector? I'm thinking the hospitality industry specifically, or is it much broader than that? Yeah, it's, well, it's broad in the sense that if you look at most businesses have some fairly serious concerns about their about their business. So if you look at the overall business community, about 30% are worried about whether they're going to be able to reopen uh, their business. Mm-hmm. And um, about half of them are saying, and you're smart enough to have me on your show on Sunday morning when I'm just looking at the fresh results from the survey that went out on Friday night, so I'm giving you the latest okay. on this. Um, but the, the 50 per, 50% are saying they're significantly stressed by this. And in fact, when I looked at t- today's survey results, I thought, wow, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of the comments and a lot of the things we're, we're saying are almost like a little bit um, less optimistic than last week. And I think what it is, is it's kind of the reckoning after a storm. So we've turned the corner in the sense that many provinces have flattened the curve and nationally it looks like we've flattened the curve. Certainly in, here in British Columbia, we've been in relatively um, uh, better shape than, than others. Um, so we've, we've flattened our curve a little sooner. So and now we're talking about reopening, which is great, but it's the point in the storm where you come back to the house and you you kind of look at the damage. Mm-hmm. And I think for many business owners, um, this week and next is going to feel like a low point, even though we are kind of coming out of the tunnel. So yeah, people are worried. And to answer your question about which sectors are hardest hit, absolutely hospitality, personal services. Yeah. So you know, think about your nail salons and your your hairdressers. Um, you know, these sectors have been very hard hit and are very worried. And when we look at our number breakdowns, the numbers are always worse for those sectors. It's interesting because if there's anybody in this town that needs a haircut right now, it's yours truly here, Laura, I got to tell you. But, you know, it's also interesting to note that a lot of the people who provide the services of haircuts and beauticians and all the rest of that are actually not as anxious to get back and get those chairs open and get the client back in, in the salon as we might think. Some of them, of course, are, but some of them are just out of pure health concerns, still skittish about reopening. What's the sense that you get in that regard from your surveying? Um, exactly what you said, that many are, are worried about the health, con- um, health impacts for their employees and customers, and they want to make sure that their customers are feeling safe to come back. And if you look at the businesses that are still doing some business, it's absolutely incredible what they're doing. You know, just the, the voluntary and very um, fast 
kind of um, creative measures that businesses are taking to make sure that customers feel feel safe. You have the smallest businesses saying, you know, one customer at a time, yep. please, and, you mm-hmm. know, explaining that they're using the hand sanitizers and that they're, you know, making that available to people. But I think one big question for many business owners is also how sustainable is that? Because, you know, the business model wasn't built on one customer at a time. That's for sure. It was built on, I was talking to my, my hairdresser um, the other day, and, you know, I said how, how and that, that was what he was talking about, is how many, how many customers can I have in? And being very worried about that. So there are a bunch of concerns that people have when it comes to reopening the health um, and, and safety of their customers is top of the list. Access to protective, personal protective equipment um, is a high concern mm-hmm. right now for many business owners. We're hearing many saying, I don't know if I can find, you know, find the equipment I need. Uh, so that's up there. Making sure they understand the guidance and then, you know, posting, if they haven't already, posting um, uh, things for their customers so they know what the social distancing is. But there are a lot of businesses that have the question, will social distancing work in my business? Yes. Is this a sustainable model? Because if I have to be at half capacity or, or 75% capacity, it may not, the numbers may not work long term to keep the business viable. Well, exactly. In Manitoba, you've referenced Manitoba. Manitoba a couple of times in Manitoba, for example, they're they're allowing patios outside restaurants to reopen this weekend. But Laura, the patio again with distancing requirements, it'll only be approximately thirty three percent of the available patio space. Nobody indoors, and to put a kitchen staff and open up the restaurant for one third of typically your smallest seating area, your patio is it's real borderline as to whether it's actually worth it. It's it, it is very borderline uh, as it's worth it. I think it's borderline for most businesses until you get to the seventy five percent, eighty percent threshold. Right. And even then, for some businesses, it's not really workable. I mean, small businesses don't make huge money. Their profit margins are often, you know, quite quite um, thin. And they've got big bills to pay every month, their wages and and rent being a big fixed cost. Sure. That you know you're using you use the example of a third of the patio space you're still paying you're still paying your rent for that your full rent that's for, right you know a third of the customer base that it's not an equation that's gonna that's gonna work long term 56 percent say they have no more capacity to take on debt we were just talking about the banks a few moments ago during this emergency they're topped up they they're probably they're unwilling to uh, be lent to in the first place but they have no more capacity and i expect that number is probably going to go up in the weeks ahead don't you Oh yeah, the the concern about debt is you know is is very very high. The two two big concerns that have been consistent right since the the beginning have been debt and cash flow. So paying your immediate bills and then debt. And when we ask businesses how are you financing this, um, that picture is a little scary too because people are running up their credit cards. Uh, they're they're using their personal savings. They're dipping into their RRSPs and their retirement savings if they have them. Um, so. Um, that's pretty scary. And I think, I, I think the reality is that support is going to continue to be needed for longer than was initially envisioned. So uh, nobody thinks that, you know, May or June is going to be anywhere close to normal revenue. So I think these supports are going to have to go on for longer than uh, government initially intended and maybe expanded to, like the emergency business account. Right. The $10,000 forgivable has been a godsend for many businesses. But the longer this goes on, the more challenging it is. Absolutely. Laura, great to have you back on the show. We must do this again in a few more weeks and get caught up to where where the small business community in Canada is these days. We appreciate your time this morning very much. Thanks. Thank you.
joined on the line by a former BC Lions president to talk about the uh, pitch by the Canadian Football League for, well, taxpayer dollars, 30, to $30 million as a short-term bridge to get them through and up, uh, starting up this season. But if this season is cancelled, and it is entirely possible, uh, the league is requesting $150 million taxpayer dollars. So to flesh it all out, perhaps give us a little bit of background on it, it's a pleasure to welcome Frank Giliotti to the program. Mr. Giliotti is a Vancouver businessman who, uh, once upon a time ago, was president of the British Columbia Alliance for a couple of seasons. Frank, good morning. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm well, thank you, sir. It's good to have you with us. You were president of the Leos from when? 92, 93, or 91, 92? 91, 92. Those are the uh, Doug Flutie years with Murray Pesham, if you recall. Okay, a pretty exciting time for the fans. And back in those days, Frank, it wasn't at all unusual to see 50,000 fans show up for a Lions game either, was it? No, you know what? We had sold out uh, uh, games virtually the whole season, you know, and we had star power. I mean, uh, you know, Doug Flutie, let's face it, uh, he was just magic on the field, you know, and uh, the fans loved him and we also had uh, another asset, and that was Murray Pezum. Murray was a great guy. He was larger than life, and he would be out there working with the fans before the game sure. and uh, doing all that crazy stuff. And we didn't sell football as much as we sold entertainment. And uh, so in those days, uh, the BC Lions and the league, as I recall, were both in pretty healthy financial shape, right? Yep, they, they did okay, you know, and, and uh, we're talking about uh, the way the league looks right now. Uh, we had to have fan support back then, and it was a lot easier back then. So what's what's the deal, Frank? I guess I, I'm going to ask you just straight up for your opinion on this pitch for taxpayer dollars. But before I get to that, is there not some kind of TV deal? We know that in the United States with the NBA and even the NHL up here uh, and, and the NFL, certainly, the league survives because of enormous royalties paid to it by television networks to broadcast their games. Do we not have a similar deal? TSN has the sort of exclusive rights to the CFL in Canada, do they not pay honking huge amounts of money to the league every year for the privilege of broadcasting those games? They absolutely do, and the league does have uh, a deal with the TSN uh, for, I think, another two years. But, you know, 50% of all revenue is coming from ticket sales. Okay. You know, the rest is sponsorship and uh, and merchandising, and, and uh, although the TSN deal is, is very good for them, I just don't see how they're going to keep the teams alive without fans in attendance. You know, for what reason? Merchandising is a very big part of the revenue stream. And without any fans in attending, how are you going to sell the, the T-shirts and uh, the merchandising and the hot dogs? You sure. Know? Uh, yeah. So, Frank, uh, I suppose what's a little difficult for a lot of fans right now, because uh, you know, we talked about the glory days, if you will, of, of easily averaging 45,000, 50,000 fans a game, quite easily achieving that number, game in, game out, to now where they're lucky to get 25,000 fans in the stadium. The upper deck has been sealed off for a few seasons. What the heck happened? This is a big well, Canadian Football League market, or certainly used to be. Well, you know, I just want to correct you. When we were doing our 
45, 50, 55,000 back in 91. Uh, we were the only ones doing that. They oh, is that right? Pulling the, no, they weren't pulling those kinds of numbers in Toronto or some of the other cities. The smaller cities did really well, but no, the big cities weren't doing all that great. Uh, I think one of the reasons why attendance has been down is that the TV deal, although it's really helped them financially in terms of their lifeline, you know, uh, you know, everybody has a big screen TV, mm-hmm. and and the quality of the uh, the you know the broadcast is so great that it just it's eliminated a lot of people saying, well, why would I go fight traffic? I uh, have to pay you know thirty dollars for parking, and, and when I can see this at home. Well, I suppose, but then again, you talked about, and I think it, it, it's bang on because the, they're certainly still selling that in most pro sports leagues these days. It's the fan experience, Frank. And, you know, yeah. uh, it, there's there's nothing like being at the game. That's, that's the sort of mindset you have to instill in people because you're quite right. It's much easier to sit on the comfy couch, dodge the parking and all the chaos around yeah. the stadium, yeah. and have a few friends yeah. over. But that's not... It's not the fan experience. It's not the live at the game experience. And somehow or another, they, they, I guess we've lost selling the sizzle. Maybe that's it. Well, you know, the packaging has been really, you know, you know, off. off. I, okay, give me an example. Your friend and my friend, Bruce Allen, you know, we, we go out to uh, watch the baseball team, you know, the baseball comedian. Sure. And, uh, and uh, I said, geez, what a, what a great setup this is. Here we are, we're watching a single A team. You know, there's three or four tiers before you get to the show. So mm-hmm. we're, we're getting just entry-level ball players. But, you know, he's, Bruce says it costs you nothing to get in. It costs you 30 bucks to get out because you're there, you're buying a beer, a sure. hot dog, you know. You're enjoying, in fact, attendance actually goes down during the playoffs because it starts getting cold out there. That's right, yeah. You know, so it's a real fan experience. It's tough to do that at uh, BC Place because there's no wind blowing, you know, the smell of the hot dogs and, uh, you know, somebody might be smoking or whatever. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a different experience. And the other problem is that, and I know that stadium intimately because I worked there for so long. Sure. Uh, 30,000 uh, people, even 30,000, you feel like it's a barren, you know, uh, uh, it, it, there's, just, there's just no atmosphere. When you go to a Canucks game, everybody's sitting close to you, and, the, and most of the games are sold out or pretty close to it. Yep. So there's a real fan experience. But when you've got uh, two or three people sitting, and then there's four or five seats that are empty, and then another two or three in front of you, it just it, you don't have that that uh, you know that impact that you would have when you when everybody's into the game and everybody's saying God, I'm glad I got a chance to get into this game. I'm glad I got these seats. You don't have that with the BC Lions. Interesting, and yet as as you pointed out, the cities like uh, Regina. Winnipeg, the smaller markets where, you know, in, in Saskatchewan, for example, the Rough Riders are actually one of the province's biggest businesses. And it's a community-owned team. Not, Sterling, not only that, they're the most, uh, you know, the, the, the best team in the league, the wealthiest team in the league. They've got, they, they, they produce more cash flow there than any other team in the league, and they're the smallest market. Right. You were asking, you know, somebody was asking about Halifax, how this is going to impact on Halifax. Well, you know, Halifax has got a half a million people. 
you know, and uh, little Regina has got he's got what uh, two hundred and fifty thousand or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, the smaller markets always do great because, frankly, there's not as much to do, and they're fiercely loyal uh, in, in terms of their team. No so question. I think uh, you know, I think if uh, the CFL does expand uh, to uh, Halifax, I think it's going to be a huge success. So what do you think? We're going to, we're going to take a break here, and we're going to open up the phone lines and talk to some more taxpayers. But before we go to the break, we've sort of danced around it a little bit, so let me just come at you straight on. What do you think about the pitch? The $30 million bridge funding, $150 million if the season has to be canceled. The Prime Minister has acknowledged that he has received the pitch, and that's about all he's said so far. What do you think the public appetite for a CFL bailout is, Frank? Well, I, you know, you have to look at the situation in, in general. Okay, first of all, who's asking? You know, let's not forget that five of the eight teams are owned by profitable companies yes. that make billions. Bell Media last year, who owns the Argos, an example, they cleared $3 billion, billion in net profits. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other teams are owned by some of Canada's wealthiest families, you know, uh, you know, that's pretty tough to ask the taxpayer to bail them out when these people, you know, oh, here's the other problem. The CFL doesn't intend to pay it back. I was under the impression it was supposed to be a loan and they were good for whatever the amount was. They no. no, 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 no. They, what they were saying is that uh, we want $150 million and, uh, you know, we're not going to pay it back, but we're going to pay it back in kind because we're going to get our players <laughs> to do public appearances or maybe tourist videos or something like that. They said they're going to pay it back in kind. Uh-huh. But, no, you know, but, okay, why are they asking for the $150 million? Why do you think they're asking, Sterling, for this money? I know why they're asking for it. But, you know, the writing is on the wall. The TV deal with TSN is $40 million per year. Right. It's for this year and next year, and then it runs out. Now, unless, unless TSN decides to renew the contract but in the same terms, which I don't think they're going to, I can't see it happening. The league, the teams are all going to be getting, you know, whatever, maybe $20 million or $15 million or whatever the TV deal may be, but it's not going to be $40 million. Right. They're going to have to start putting some fans in the stands to compensate for that uh, generous revenue they're getting just by allowing TSN to broadcast their games. So I think the, the commissioner's a smart guy. He said to himself, well, you know, uh, how likely is it for us to get this TV deal renewed? And I, I wouldn't put my money on it. So he's got to find a way to, you know, to compensate for this. I don't think this is about COVID or this particular season. Uh, I think that, you know, if the TSN is paying them 40 and they can get 150, which is roughly four times as much, yeah. that, will carry them, that will carry them for another five or six years. Subject on the table for your consideration, it's not a sports talk show, but this is a taxpayer matter. The, B, the Canadian Football League has applied for a federal aid package. They're looking for $30 million to bridge them through to the beginning of this season. And if this season is cancelled, and it's utterly possible, then they want $150 million survival money. And our guest... 
Frank Giliotti, a Vancouver businessman, former BC Lions president, has pointed out that it indeed is a loan, but it's not repayable in the typical way. They're not offering to pay back the money. They're offering to pay it back in kind. And that's a bit different, especially as it bounces off taxpayers, Frank. Uh, if you're going to get the money back in cash eventually, that's one one situation. But if it's being offered up with public service announcements and personal appearances by players and no return on the taxpayer dollar, that's not going to help the, the, the cause very much from where I'm sitting. Uh, is that your take as well? Yeah, it is. You know, uh, the governments are forking out so much money to try and get the country through this uh, COVID. But let's not forget one thing. Um, it was estimated that the deficit this year is going to be 10 times greater than last year. Mm-hmm. 10 times greater. That's right. I mean, who's going to pay back all this money? It's going to be the taxpayer. And it's not going to be us older people. It's going to be, it'll be right on the, the backs of our children. Mm-hmm. Let's take some calls, Frank, as, as, as we uh, go forward. We'll include some, some listeners in the conversation. John's been on the line the longest. Good morning, John. Thanks for waiting. What's your take on a bailout for the CFL? Uh, yeah, good morning. Um, I am uh, uh, used to be a season ticket holder years ago, loved the game, loved the CFL. Um, I think uh, right now, uh, you know, I'd prefer to watch it on TV rather than try and take in the sky train and sure. things like that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what, what would be the possibility of a pay-per-view? I mean, to me, uh, I love the game. I certainly wouldn't mind paying 10 bucks to watch the game on TV or something like that. But uh, to me, that would be a revenue getter. Interesting suggestion, John. Thanks very much for the call. Frank, you were talking about how uh, television is enormously important to the CFL and how much money is already at stake. Uh, what about that pay-per-view option? Because obviously, if the season does get underway at all, it's going to be either with a limited number of fans in the Stands or possibly even no fans in the stands. So what about pay-per-view? Well, they're getting it for free already. TSN has got the broadcast rights. Right. And, uh, they're, they're already offering it for free. I don't know how you can charge more for it. Okay, so going forward after the end of the contract would be the only time that a new model could be considered and the contract has one more season after 2020 to run, correct? That's, that's what I understand, yes. Okay, so that uh, it's a good suggestion, but uh, given the fact that it's already free, it would be tough to convince people to, to, to fork over money that they don't have. But the, John's other point was, uh, you know, we're talking pandemic here, Frank. And if to, you, to get to a game, you're either going to drive downtown or you're going to take the train uh, and you're going to be in all of those crowd situations. And we're at a point here in B.C. now, Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, our, our already announced some kind of roadmap, albeit quite tentative, for reopenings, Manitoba being at the tip of the spear on this. They've got some businesses opened up this weekend. But in BC, we don't. We have plans underway, but no description whatsoever in terms of timeline. So it's utterly possible that, you know, uh, it, it, we're, we're going to be in a situation come the start of the season or even a delayed start where Dr. Bonnie Henry is going to say, no, I'm sorry, BC Place is off, off limits right now. Well, you know, this brings up another point, though. You, you mentioned me, 
but I was a businessman. But then speaking from a businessman's perspective, um, if you don't have 20,000 or 30,000 people in the stands, but you're broadcasting the game that's going to run without attendance. Right. Those, those 20,000 people are going to be watching it on TV. Right. So, so their viewership, TSN viewership, is going to skyrocket, and they will be able to sell more advertising around that particular uh, situation. Right. So in, in, in terms of, of TSN uh, and the broadcast rights, uh, I think that if the games don't go live, that they are in a better situation financially than if they do. Interesting stuff. So what do you think the government's going to do here? I'm, I'm asking you to pull out the old crystal ball on a Sunday morning, Frank. I mean, I don't sense a great deal of appetite. The prime minister has been asked quite directly by uh, by various members of the media, what are you going to do here, prime minister? The CFL pitch, there's so much on the table, it's just added to the list. And that's all he said so far. It's on the list. We're looking at it. That's it. Okay, well, let's look at it pragmatically. What has been the total now? Is it 175? billion that he has committed that's about right about 175 billion 150 million is change you'd lose in, in you know on the couch when you think about it but here's the problem as i see it okay the bc lions come with their hands and their hat in their hands and say listen we need 150 million mm-hmm. what kind of precedence does that set what about soccer Sure. What about Olympic sport? What about hockey? What about baseball? What about everything else? If they do it for one team, they have to offer it to all of them. And that's the problem. I think that that's a, a precedent-setting thing. But I think realistically, uh, uh, the, the teams in the league, most of them, are owned by wealthy families and wealthy corporations that really don't need a handout. They really don't. All right, I Frank. Mean, David, David Brady doesn't need a handout. You know? <laughs> Bell, Bell doesn't need a handout. They really don't. Well, it's going to be interesting. That's, that's, this this is going yeah. to play out. I, I'm I'm fresh out of time. I'm grateful for yours and for your perspective and for straightening me out on the actual terms and conditions of the quote loan they're looking for. Frank, it's been a real pleasure. We appreciate it. Pleasure's mine, Sterling. Have a great day. It's a go. In mid-January, Chinese consulates in Canada and all over the world issued an urgent call. China was concerned that the new coronavirus raging in Wuhan was so deadly and infectious that its nurses and doctors would run out of safety supplies. It needed personal protective equipment, or PPEs. Now, Chinese government data shows that in just six weeks, China imported two and a half billion billion pieces of epidemic safety equipment, including over 2 billion safety masks. The story is headlined, United Front Groups in Canada Helped Beijing Stockpile Coronavirus Safety Supplies. The reporter that broke the story last week is Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper, who joins us today from Ottawa. Sam, good to have you on the program. Hello. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Sam. How long have you been working on this story? How much time did you spend uh, doing the homework before you finally broke it? Well, as always is the case, there's really years of background research, and then a crisis occurred. And over the past two months, I've been digging into uh, exactly what you just said in, uh, in the introduction there, 
PPE disappeared from the Western world, really, the whole world, and it ended up in China, this happening while China, the evidence now, was covering up the extent of the pandemic risk. So I, I looked into the nature of, you know, really what was a state-level operation right from the top of Chinese Communist Party right. and found evidence of the, the networks we, that, that are known as the United Front Work Department, directed from Beijing and operated from consulates around the world. During this time, was that the time that Canada also, because I remember we sent a plane load of PPE and other equipment to China in the early days of the coronavirus. Was that happening at the same time this other network gathering operation was going on? That's right. I'm looking back retrospectively at what what we didn't know in January was that China's leadership knew about the the deadly risks to the world, really, right. of this virus. Right. At the time, we know that through diplomatic channels, of course, they were approaching their counterparts in, in the rest of the world and saying, please help us contain this virus. And for some reason, uh, yes, Canada sent 16 tons of PPE in the early days of February. Uh, they, they say through uh, emails, we know that they didn't believe this would compromise Canada's supply Obviously, it did. And so what my reporting showed was that there was uh, knowledge in Canada's government from some. These would be people in manufacturing military circles that China was making this early move to, to protect themselves. People were saying, should Canada not protect their supply? Canada did not. A lot of other governments in the world did not. And my report showed the reasons that should have been suspect. And that was that this under the cover, under the radar operation was going on through clandestine networks and through diplomatic channels. Let's talk about the united front. Uh, we are to some degree aware, Sam, of a, a component of the huge bureaucracy run by the Communist Party of a department that keeps its eye, it's exclusively organized to keep its eye on Chinese people who live outside of China. And is that the United Front? Is that what the department is called? Yes, in very simple terms, it's called the United Front Work Department. It's a a high-level organ of the Chinese Communist Party. It was there right from the start when that party took control of China. And it has a number of of elements, some uh, more apparent and some really espionage. And so a concerning aspect is, yes, through Chinese Communist Party doctrine, uh, this department asserts that it, 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 uh, it owns Really, it says that it owns Chinese immigrant communities worldwide right. and that it doesn't matter if you're a citizen of another country, you owe your allegiance to the regime of Xi Jinping. That's very concerning, but it gets more concerning when we find out that these uh, underground networks were, were activated in mid-January when China wanted them to uh, travel in the countries where they live and buy up all the PPE, ship it back to China. Well, we remember just anecdotally here in Metro Vancouver, Sam, during February, for example, when it became a somewhat apparent that something awful was coming and we'd better smarten up and get ready for something and we weren't entirely sure of what it was. We knew about Wuhan and we knew uh, about an infectious epidemic and we also knew that part of the survival equipment was going to be PPEs, on, on even on an individual basis. So we started 
started looking around and anecdotally were told that there isn't any available. Stocks in local pharmacies and other suppliers had been bought up and in many cases exported away. Yes, and there's a lot of things going on. I think part of it is, uh, of course, you know, the Chinese diaspora community is much more tied in through family and uh, through uh, Chinese media to what is going on in China, even though that country keeps a very tight grip on on its media. Of course, uh, people are worried about their family members, and, and they're starting to believe that maybe these family members need some assistance. So fair play. I think a lot of people probably out of good intention started to buy safety masks and might have uh, shipped them home independently. However, what we're finding is that these powerful, uh, powerfully controlled community group networks, especially in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, are directed from the top in China through consulates in Canada and through community leaders that uh, owe their allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. There's a collective action Go everywhere you can. Buy all the masks you can. We're talking about pharmacies, retail stores, home hardwares, Costco's, whatever you have. It's an organization. We bring it back to the airport. We document what we collected and we send it back through the United Front Work Department party, which is receiving it at airports in China. This is a state level operation. So there's a the waters can get muddy. But what we do know is that it's directed right from the top. And the action is taking place uh, in our cities in Canada and worldwide. Sam Cooper is an investigative reporter with Global News joining us on the line from Ottawa today, talking about a story he broke just a couple of days ago, uh, headlined, uh, The United Front Groups in Canada Helped Beijing Stockpile Coronavirus Safety Supplies. And I'm just following the timeline of your of your work here. And by the time Wuhan was locked down in uh, late January, uh, this by, by the time that, that, that so mid-January, Chinese officials are uh, we're starting to uh, receive instructions from the very, very top to prepare for a, a pandemic, to respond to a pandemic. Wuhan was locked down about a week or so later. Uh, and all the time that this was going on, uh, as Sam is, is talking, telling us this morning, there was this massive effort, a global effort to recover uh, PPEs, personal protective equipment, and have them returned to China. Did they get used by people in China or in many cases, Sam, where they just simply repackaged and sold back to the rest of the world upon our discovery of our need for those equipment? Well, there's still a lot to know about that question, but what we do know is that from January 23rd to the end of February, Chinese customs data shows that they imported 2.02 billion safety masks 2.5 billion pieces of PPE in total. So that would include safety gowns, mm-hmm. uh, gloves, disinfectant. That's a huge, a huge import. Uh, and let's remember, China already produces the majority of the supply in the world. And they ramped up their supply in that period and slapped export bans on uh, global companies in China. So what my what my research showed was a very interesting source mexico's former ambassador to china i noticed that he was issuing some information in january that he was getting information that n95 masks were disappearing worldwide i called him up and i found out that one of his sources in mexican supply chain logistics had warned him 
uh, in mid, you know, mid-January that this was going on. Another, another source that I found, Conservative MP Aaron O'Toole, who's a very, uh, you know, connected to military sure. and in, uh, intelligence networks in Canada. Right. He was hearing the same thing through his sources. And he told me that, in fact, manufacturers warned Canada's government in January that this operation in China was going on. So what we do know is that all this, basically the world's supply ended up in China, leaving the world, uh, as, as the Mexican former ambassador said, naked of PPE when they needed it the most, when COVID-19 has circled the globe. We don't know what has happened to that supply in China. Is it sitting in warehouses? We know that it seems uh, they have gotten their pandemic under control to an extent. Yes. We have no idea how many infections there were, there were there, are there. We have no idea of the deaths, but we know they're sitting on the supply that the world needs right now. We also know that a lot of supply has come back at very inflated prices, uh, 1,000%, uh, some reports are saying, yes. you know, masks that cost a dollar in January now are costing six, seven, eight, nine, ten dollars mm-hmm. So to your question, I think a lot of investigation needs to occur in terms of what happened to that two, two billion masks that ended up in China. All we know is that uh, it's being sold back and strings are attached, political strings as well, to the countries they get it. No question. And, and the problem is, Comte, you're in Ontario. You know that uh, Doug Ford was pretty cheesed when uh, Ontario received a shipment of PPEs from China and the quality was decidedly inferior. The price being charged was top drawer, but it turns out the quality of the product was, uh, it, most of it, or a large portion of it, was actually useless. And so uh, this is uh, not... Uh, going down well in, in the markets that were relying on these shipments. There's all kinds of problems. The quality defect issue is one. The issue of what people call mask diplomacy or mask leverage. My report indicated that the U.S. Congress said a concern here is that for the countries that are lucky enough to get those masks, assuming that they are quality masks from China, there are going to be political strings attached, and those political strings are tied to the Chinese Communist Party. We had There's a controversial Chinese telecom company seeking to install a worldwide network who, uh, it turns out, uh, is the hand that has uh, so-called donated some masks back to Canada. Right. I can see some concerns there. Uh, there are all kinds of concerns. Uh, and again, I, I, you know, I can tell you one thing. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, the MP, said that when safety comes back, Let's pray that it does come back to Canada. An investigation, a broad investigation, needs to occur where we look at these issues. I think you're right, and I think ultimately it will. It's not going to happen, of course, Sam, until we have that uh, relative calm and uh, a a fairly widely held public assurance that we have gotten even beyond flattening the curve, that we're now in in an area where we can relax a little bit, and and we're not going to go, it's never going to be the same as it was, but there will be a new normal to emerge from this, and when we're much closer to that, I think you're quite right. I think there will be a very large, allowed demand for a review of the timeline and the manner in which and the and the time uh, taken by the government of Canada to react and uh, to uh, supply itself to warn the population to uh, to make appropriate moves but it's not quite the time now but in the meantime evidence gathering is going on and and you're for example in the report you talk about uh, the uh, the campaign to return as much of this PPE equipment uh, being organized uh, 
uh, in many cases through Chinese consulates, uh, including Vancouver. Absolutely. That, that is the other side of the coin to the story. Uh, it was political networks that uh, organized the buying and shipping of the masks uh, from Canada to China. Now it is political networks that are organizing the masks coming back, if they come back. And again, that would be through United Front groups. And uh, so, the, of course, uh, Canada needs those masks. Sure. But the concerns uh, go along the lines of who is being selected you know, to receive those masks. Do they owe anything back to these political networks directed from China? Or are these political networks from China selectively choosing people that they would like to have the mask in Canada? It's just a, a situation fraught with questions and risk, I think. Sam, what do you know about pressure being brought to bear on uncooperative Canadians uh, in the Chinese diaspora who aren't interested in being a warrior for Beijing? Well, this is a very, I believe, important question going forward because uh, these United Front networks were very active long before the the COVID-19 crisis. But what we do know, some of my colleagues, uh, such as Doug Kwan, a former Post Media reporter that I worked on uh, some of these uh, network stories with, has found that, uh, you know, grassroots Chinese-Canadian groups that were very non-political, just community groups, have increasingly come under the control of these political networks from consulates uh, over the past few years. And it really coincides with the the power of uh, Xi Jinping, who has increased vastly the resources to this political department, United Front. And there's evidence that uh, United Front agents are indeed uh, pressuring Canadian citizens to, to pay their allegiance, to owe their allegiance to Beijing. And my sources in the Chinese Canadian community tell me the vast majority of citizens here in Canada with Chinese ethnicity are, are completely resistant right. to, to these, uh, you know, nefarious, really uh, meddling efforts from China. They don't want to be part of it. But let me tell you that there can be there can be threats, there can be intimidation. And these are stories that I'm working on that haven't fully been uh, they're ready to come out. Uh, it's very concerning. Sam, we appreciate the work you're doing. Hats off to you, sir, for some very fine work and incredible homework and, and for breaking this story, which is far from over. Please uh, join us again when there's a new installment to, to talk about. We're very much looking forward to that opportunity. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.